Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. By now, I'm sure many of you have seen the heartbreaking footage of George Floyd's death at the hands of policemen that's been circulating on the news and social media for over a week. In this video, George Floyd, a black citizen of Minneapolis, is shown being held to the ground at his neck by Derek Chauvin, a white Minneapolis police officer. The unjust death of George Floyd has sparked protests across the country and even the world, but it's also sparked many violent riots, riots that have taken lives and destroyed communities. How can we helpfully approach policing reform and how should we respond to the current widespread rioting? Anthony Bradley, who's a professor of religion, theology, and ethics at the King's College, breaks it down. Don't forget that you can read the show notes at blog.acton.org. And if you like this show, help us bring more attention to this episode by sharing it with friends and on social media. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by Anthony Bradley, Associate Professor of Religious Studies, Program Chair of Religious and Theological Studies, and Director for the Center for Human Flourishing at the King's College, New York. He is also a Research Fellow at the Acton Institute. He is a member of the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences and the American Academy of Religion. His most recent book is titled Ending Over Criminalization and Mass Incarceration, Hope uh, from Civil Society. Today, we'll be discussing the death of George Floyd, the protest movement against police brutality, which began in Floyd's home of Minneapolis and has now spread worldwide. The riots that have broken out in many parts of America, prompting the National Guard mobilization in 24 states, and how Christians can best think through and respond to this crisis. Anthony, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. First, I'd like to begin by noting that you're speaking uh, to us from New York City, which has been at the epicenter of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States and has seen both large protests and some violence. Um, and how are you holding up in the face of all of this? I'm actually doing fine. Thanks for asking. Things have been a bit crazy here in the city, although they, it's, it has been in, in isolated pockets of the city. So I live in Washington Heights, which is uh, 181st near the George Washington Bridge in the northern part of Manhattan. And if you were in my neighborhood, you would actually just think COVID was happening. You have no idea that we're having uh, these protests and the sort of unrest that we're seeing on the news. So uh, it's in isolated pockets of the Bronx and, and Brooklyn and really the sort of midtown to, to lower Manhattan is where you're seeing a lot of the, the news activity. But most of the city is actually uh, functioning quite as normal. How, however, I will say that the places where it's bad, it's actually really bad. And so um, you're just seeing some some uh, interesting disparities there. Well, that's that's great to hear that you're doing well, and that and that so many parts of the city are doing well. Um, it's it's hard in this age of sort of mass and social media. The pictures you get are often sort of the the very worst or uh, the most dramatic, and and not necessarily representative of the entire situation. So we're 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 glad things are things are good in many parts of the city. Um, 
What sparked off these protests was on the, on the 25th of May, George Floyd uh, died during an, an arrest. Uh, Officer Derek Chauvin kept his knee on the side of Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes while Floyd was handcuffed and lying face down. During the last three minutes, uh, Floyd was motionless. Uh, three other officers participated in the arrest, which was made on the basis of an accusation of using a counterfeit $20 bill at a market. Police claimed that Floyd physically resisted arrest. Uh, several bystanders took videos, which have since been widely circulated on mass and social media. And on May 26, the officers were placed on leave and then, and then later fired that day. Um, on May 29th, uh, Shelvin was arrested and charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. This is uh, tragic. And, and Anthony, what, what do you make of this tragedy and sort of um, the immediate response of the city and the police force and, uh, and the reaction of people to this um, in the media? Well, I, I think we're seeing a, a breakdown on the intersection of, of human dignity and, and local government uh, policing of their own communities. And that's been a bit of a trend. You know, there are about 1,200 uh, local police departments in this country, and they all have various histories of how they are used uh, to control uh, particularly uh, lower-class residents, whether that's in urban areas or, or in rural areas, and and we we really saw uh, the great the great tragedy of of what happens when uh, someone who's under arrest loses his or her humanity and becomes a suspect, uh, not a person. And so what we saw is a police officer who, didn't ha who did not have his knee on the neck of a human being. He had his knee on the neck of, of a perpetrator or a potential a suspect uh, or, or a criminal deviant. And what we see across the country and what we've seen historically over the last several decades is what happens when we relabel people and we, we, we recategorize people according to these labels that remove their dignity. And so their response has been very similar to uh, what, what we saw during the civil rights movement when uh, appeals were made to his humanity. And you, if people saw the video at the end, there are people saying, you know, he's a person, right? That was, yeah. that was the argument. He's a human being. He's a human being. He's a human being. You don't treat human beings like this. And, and insofar as we fail to see a certain populations of our, of our communities as humans, when we remove their humanity and human dignity from them, then it gives us license to treat them uh, any way that we want to do. And so people are protesting much like they did during the civil rights movement, because there has been a breakdown in seeing all human beings in this culture as, as deserving uh, dignity and, and respect and being imbued with the sort of uh, uh, capacities and qualities uh, of what it means to be human. And, and so in my uh, 
mind, I mean, that's what these protests at the core are really about, is we have a history of police dehumanizing people across the country, and people are basically tired of it. Yeah. And you're, and you're right to point out that, that the severity of that problem differs um, from region to region and department by department. And what are, what are some of – have you seen anything in policing or public policy that tries to address that, that reality of the dehumanization that's going on in a, in a lot of places in this country. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there have been lots of local police departments across the country that have, that have been experimenting with, with different ways of, of encountering uh, and, and, and engaging in, in policing reform. I mean, it's a part of a larger criminal justice reform movement across the country. And so some, some cities have made real progress in terms of, in terms of how police do their jobs. And so there have been great advancements in some communities in terms of community policing uh, measures, uh, 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 you know, lots of, of good, good studies on what happens when, when you have beat cops walking the streets, getting to know the neighbors and the residents versus cops in a car, right? So there's studies that show that, that when police officers are in a car, uh, they behave differently than when they're walking the streets. So th- there have been there have been lots of measures. I think that the challenge is that these are are isolated, uh, small scale measures in certain communities, and and the problem is that there are other communities uh, where where the policing has taken more of a military style approach uh, to policing their communities. And when 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 law enforcement sees itself as a, as an arm of a military, uh, it it actually engages people in the same way that our military engages uh, combatants during a war, and 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 that's where we're seeing some of the breakdowns there. What we would love to see, right, is that is that these these small scale reforms that are happening in certain cities, in certain places, in certain towns. Uh, would be something that's consistently uh, embraced and and uh, developed across the country. But there are all sorts of perverse incentives and, and organizations that are resisting the types of reforms that could make re- policing better. The police union, for example, in many cities is is uh, uh, one of the the key adversaries to the sorts of, of reforms. Uh, that that need to be had in order to sort of rehumanize the way that we we do we do policing. I was I was watching. Um, there was recently a PBS documentary on uh, on Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom and some of the work that they did at the University um, of Indiana. And one of their one of their research projects was to look at sort of community responses to policing. And they found, they found a very positive correlation between the size of a department um, and its jurisdiction and sort of the smaller those were, the closer they were to the communities that, uh, that they served, um, the more uh, satisfaction there was in communities um, with that policing. And we've seen, we've seen in, the, in 
uh, you know, that trend of uh, the consolidation of departments, um, which which can make which can make those sorts of community relations more difficult and more and more removed from from citizens. I think that that it's important for people to remember that policing only works in the context of relationship, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and and the the closer police are to knowing the names of the people uh, uh, to whom they've been assigned, uh, the more effective the policing actually is, right? And so when those relationships are severed, um, when they're made anonymous uh, because of the sorts of consolidation that you talked about, when distance is created, people don't know the police officers in their communities. And when there's a real relationship, when you know people by their name, it actually changes the way that you go about the business of policing because you know the context of the person uh, that you are actually uh, uh, policing. You know, we, we think we think about the sort of uh, policing that happened during this show called Andy Griffith, right? Yeah. Um, where where Andy where, where Andy and, and Barney Fife, uh, you know, they were they were cops in their community, but they knew people. Right. And they would basically uh, handle people according to their stories and, and, and their and their own narratives. And and for for much of the nation's history, uh, uh, you, you know, we, we had that level of, of sort of local policing with multiple jurisdictions. And so I think I think the age of consolidation introduced depersonalization and introduced dehumanization where where connection and community uh, and service of, of of neighbors that you know by name uh, was traded off for being an arm of enforcing uh, the law and and that's where we begin to see some of these some of these breakdowns and that's that's at least probably you know uh, sixty to seventy years worth of of, of change that we're seeing uh, uh, today really implode on us yeah. You know, we often we often don't appreciate that that um, you know the the traditional notion of policing is 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 keeping the peace is the notion that there is a sort of order to these communities and these neighborhoods that are sustained by the citizens themselves and the police are there um, to assist that order, not to impose an order from the outside. Um, that's yeah no there's there's a lot of food for thought there um, the the protest movement that we're seeing that that, that began on, on on May 26th in Minneapolis and St Paul and uh, has continued now for for a week um, and spread to sort of all corners of the world um, these protests have been focused on issues of police brutality but have also um, sparked sort of a nationwide discussion about larger issues of race in America. Uh, is it helpful to think of these issues together? And what do you think about the ability of these protests to, to generate meaningful social change? That's a, that's a really great question. I think, I think what's happened over the last several days is that there have been multiple agendas that are attaching themselves uh, to this uh, protest over George Floyd's death. 
And I think it's honestly confused people about what, what, what is this actually about? Um, is it about race? Is it about police brutality? Is it about George Ford in particular? Is it about Minneapolis? I mean, what is it? I mean, what, what, what's the, what's the issue that we actually need to uh, address? So if people are confused, I understand because there are lots of, of, of competing agendas uh, that have, that have attached themselves to this, to this movement. I think, I think it's actually several of these things. Um, and, and I think what's happened is that, that there's lots of communities that have felt unheard. Uh, and there are lots of constituencies that are felt unheard. And so there, many are using, using Joy, J- George Floyd's death to provide a platform for people to hear them uh, because, in, you know, uh, otherwise, many of them believe and have experience uh, not not being not being heard. So we do have a history of of, of uh, over policing. Uh, that's been a that's been a long history of needed reforms in this country. Uh, local and state. Politicians have used policing as a way of, of controlling uh, lower class people, regardless of, of, of race, in multiple parts of, of this country. That's a needed conversation. Uh, police often don't have the sorts of accountability structures that the rest of us do uh, when they engage in misbehavior and corruption, things like that. And then we do have right the longstanding a discussion about race and, and why we haven't been able to sort of get over the hump there. That's a separate issue. I think that the, the policing issue is a part of that issue, mm-hmm. but the, the race discussion in America is a completely different issue. And then we have, we have a band of, of folks who've attached themselves to this movement because they're anti-capitalists, right? And they're yeah. sort of anti uh, uh, federalists, right? They're just sort of anti, some would argue maybe even, even anti-American. Uh, they want to bring down the, the, the man, the institution, the structures that, that in their minds uh, have put them in a position of disenfranchisement and they don't feel like this, this economy, this country is serving them. And I, I think that those, all those three different constituencies are, are issues that we do need to address separately. On that last group, it strikes me as, as, as fundamentally different from the first two. I mean, the, the, the first two seem like they have concerns that at least in principle could be addressed by the reform of institutions or by accountability for the leadership of those institutions while that third, that third, that that doesn't seem possible um, for that third, is is there a danger in those things being viewed together by by many in the American public who who are are alarmed at 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 some of the at some of the excesses that we've seen in terms of violence um, of linking those things in their mind. Sure, I think I think they have very different agendas. I mean, the first two agendas are actually upholding the rule of law, right? Yeah. I mean, they they believe in property rights. They believe in in the sorts of uh, principles and structures and institutions 
that that made the West what it is. What they're protesting is the lack of application of, of many of those principles to particular parts of, of American life and the usurping of those principles, the undermining of those principles in some of those communities as well. The third group is is really uh, you know, you could easily argue kind of a, a, a neo-Marxist, uh, a deconstructionalist agenda, right? Yeah. Uh, they're not about building, they're about deconstructing. And that deconstruction agenda is not what, is not what the George Ford protests are about. The deconstruction agenda is not what uh, the racial tensions in this country are about. Those first two are about ways to think about uh, removing the barriers that people have to participating in political and economic and religious life in this country in ways that allows people to flourish and thrive, right, uh, and to take advantage of the gifts and opportunities that they have before them uh, and to improve their families, right, and to grow businesses and, and uh, to grow net worth and to provide uh, savings and, and nest eggs for their children and grandchildren. Uh, this last group, this, this third group of, of deconstructionalists uh, influenced by a lot of neo-Marxist uh, ideologies, I mean, they're really about, in the name of, of justice, right, sort of in the, in the name of, of being against, you know, sort of fascism, right, uh, they're, they're really about uh, uh, removing the, the 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 platforms and structures that provide them the opportunities to do their protests in the first place, and so I think there is a danger in collapsing those three, and I think there is a danger in not carefully teasing those things out and separating this third group. Now, now here, here's what I'm not saying. Yeah, I'm not saying that that the 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 complaints and issues of the third group aren't something that need to be discussed. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we should dismiss them and ignore them just because they are out of their ranks sort of complaining about the ways in which they believe capitalism has disenfranchised them. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that that's a separate issue than what we're seeing uh, with the, with the, the, the issues re- revolving policing and race uh, in, the, in, this, in this country. Absolutely. And and there are many of these protests. By no means all, but many um, uh, have turned have turned violent. And uh, riots have now claimed the lives of of protesters, police, and and bystanders alike. Um, curfews have been instituted in many cities in the United States, and the National Guard has been mobilized in in twenty four states and in Washington D.C. Um, in response to this. What do you see as the relationship between the protest movement and these riots? And, and where, where do we need to make, make those necessary distinctions? Well, I, I think what we see is that a lot of the, the protests uh, have, have expanded from being uh, very – closely agenda driven uh, some with goals and and certain uh, ends in mind and then it it has sort of spiraled out of control and and so you have people who are participating in rioting and looting 
for all sorts of, of reasons that have nothing to do with, with, with the protest. Uh, they just simply uh, want to ride and loot. Uh, there are people uh, who are participating, I believe, who, who want to, in the name of, of seeking justice, uh, want to be destructive. And there are lots of folks in this movement, I think, who are participating in some of these protests who who don't who don't have the, a proper framework to know when is too much. Uh, they they don't know what the limitations are in terms of in terms of how to to protest peacefully to get your message across without being destructive. Those those things really do uh, uh, match with an entire generation of people who don't know boundaries because they've been coddled and they haven't, they haven't been raised by parents who provided them opportunities to learn what the boundaries of excess actually are. So in their minds, they don't understand, they don't see sort of morally conceptually why this level of, of, of destruction is actually counterproductive because, because this is often described as many, especially for a Gen Z, you know, these are, these are, it's, it's a, a generation of, of young people who actually don't know because people have provided the, the bumper bars for them their entire life. They've never experienced what the limitations of their bodies can do in terms of it being destructive. They're, they're overprotected. And when they're not given access to those things, when they're not given access, when they're not, when not, when they're not told no, uh, when they're constantly praised, uh, when, when, when parents sort of make the road safe for them instead of getting them ready for a, a bumpy, pothole-filled road, this is what you get, people that don't know how to control themselves and don't know when to say when. And, and we're seeing that across race and class in this country as well. Absolutely. So whether, whether they're suburban kids uh, from Ionia or, 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 you know, sort of uh, uh, inner city kids in, in housing projects uh, in, in cities uh, like Grand Rapids, for example, it's the same problem. Right. Not knowing when to say, okay, that's we should do that, but we shouldn't do that. Right? This is okay, but that's not okay. Right? And and those are those are things that that are taught. I mean, the difference in the in the civil rights movement is that is that it was a uh, they were training. Right? You were trained on how to protest. You were trained on on what the boundaries and limitations were in terms of what was what was helpful and what was not and that's what you're not seeing today yeah to 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 coordinate a successful nonviolent protest requires a tremendous amount of discipline and a tremendous amount of leadership and it seems that like so many things these days um, much of this Many of these protests are coordinated over social media, and a lot of these folks do not encounter each other until they've until they've arrived uh, at the location where the protest is supposed to occur. Do you think? Do you think that that that, that sort of organization through social media has has hurt 
um, has hurt these protests? And and also, um, does that does that limit their potential efficacy as, as social movements? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a fantastic question. I, I don't I don't think the problem is that it's organized or social media. I think the problem is actually we said earlier is that there there aren't any real leaders. And so, in, in in some respects, you know, some some might see this as sort of the Lord of the Flies, right, where you have kids leading kids. And if you were to identify the leaders, it'd be hard to do that, right? Uh, you know, who who are, who are the organizers? I mean, who who to to whom are people looking to for direction in terms of what to do? And I think I think what's being exposed right now is that at least for a lot of young adults, uh, they don't really have any clear leaders. And I think we need to have a discussion about why that is. And they certainly don't see politicians as their leaders. Uh, they certainly don't see religious leaders as their leaders. Uh, they certainly don't look to, you know, certain leaders of, of institutions and civil society as their leaders. Uh, who are their leaders? I mean, one of the, the differences, again, with the civil rights movement is that you have very clear leaders who are, by the way, also young, right? Yeah. It's not that the leaders needed to be old, because the the crew of folks around associated with, with, with MLK during the civil rights movement, they were all in their late teens and early in, in early to mid-20s. I mean, these were not, you know, these weren't sages, uh, who were operating in the in the space? They were also, in many respects, peers. And I think I think the question we need to ask is like, where are the the peer leaders? But what what happened to us uh, that we stopped producing uh, uh, men and women who are who who see themselves and have the capacity? Uh, to organize and sort of gone our following so that they're the ones who are in positions to make sure these things don't get out of hand. And, and I, I think because of the organic nature of, of social media, it makes it easier to organize, but that's not the problem. The problem is that, that, that the one organizing is just organizing and people show up and there's no leader. <laughs> Uh, and and any social psychologist, group psychologist is is, is gonna is gonna tell you that like there's you know there has to be a leader. Uh, this is sort of human nature. We we we're going to always have a, have a need for that. And I think that's what we're lacking right now, which is why we're seeing uh, so many different expressions of what this movement has turned into in different parts of the country. How how much of this absence of leadership do you attribute to? sort of breakdown in, in the family and the fact that even even at that most basic sort of pre-political unit of society, a lot of people lack that leadership um, from the very beginning of their lives. Yeah, I, I wonder I wonder if it's if it's not just sort of breakdowns in the family. I think I think what's happened is that parents don't raise their children to be leaders because the emphasis on raising children is sort of the, the narcissistic pursuit of one's self-actualization uh, to be delivered and appropriated in a life of comfort and ease. 
mean, yeah. why would you be? Why would you raise your children to be a leader when they may end up poor or they may end up, you know, sort of not being socially and economically mobile? When you raise children to think it to be self-centered, that's and that's the culture we have, right? We, we, we've raised a generation of self-centered Americans rather than raising a generation of young people who are other-centered and want to serve other people rather than serving themselves as a, as a modus operandi, right, as a, as a way of being. This is what you get. You don't have any leaders because leaders are people who, who, who are willing to sacrifice their own uh, progress, success, for the success and progress of other people. Right, they're they're willing to trade that off. They're willing to to be up to be so other centered that some of their own sort of hopes, dreams, aspirations for their own personal lives are willing to suspend those uh, so that other people can thrive and flourish as well. And beginning, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'll start it with the, with the generation after me. Uh, beginning, <laughs> beginning with the millennials, which I am. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 Gen Xers. We were the last great generation mm-hmm. of, of servants in, in America. Uh, when, but it, it's actually pretty, you know, pretty uh, well noted in 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 social and moral psychology that that the millennial generation, in particular, uh, was a generation that was raised uh, to be, in some respects, sort of. Uh, they were given permission to be narcissistic, and and uh, the, the 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 narcissism uh, epidemic is a great book by uh, Jane uh, Twinge on this issue that sort of describes exactly how you know kids that were born uh, in the in the 80s uh, as they were sort of raised in the 90s. I mean, they were they were uh, raised to be selfish. They were raised to be self-centered and to think of themselves as awesome and to not care about anybody else but themselves. So that, I think, has a lot to do with, with, with this current void. And then think about it, right? You add that onto the Gen Z generation, uh, sort of born around 2000, and they've been characterized as the most depressed and anxious generation in American history. Uh, so you have you have sort of in the in the sweet spot of these protests, right? A generation of narcissists uh, leading a generation of deeply depressed and anxious people, uh, and 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 we're we're seeing the sort of toxic cocktail of that in terms of the absence of of, of leadership that we've seen uh, over. Because two generations of young people have not been raised to be leaders in their communities. In addition to the to the tragic loss of life that 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 this lack of leadership has 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 led to, um, there's been a lot of property damage as a result of the rioting, um, and there's been you know some some major figures in in the media and academia who have who have sort of minimized. Um, the effect of that, um, you know, um, how does how does large scale property damage like this affect these areas, these communities? Like long, long, long after the glass is swept up and and the windows are replaced. 
Yeah. You know, what, one of the things that I, I noticed early on is, and, and, and this was often reported, is that a lot of the people who were committing the most egregious acts of, of property crime, property damage, were not even from those communities. And so there's an othering that happens uh, because people are are clearly damaging uh, and destroying property of the people with whom they have no relationship with. And so because of that disconnection, it's easier sort of psychologically because you don't know the person to destroy their, their property. And so I think, I think there, there's going to be you know, sort of long-term economic decline in, in some communities where, where, especially in some of the lower-income communities, a lot of the, those businesses won't come back. I mean, they were already heavily compromised because of the COVID shelter-in-place restrictions. And now you add to that the sorts of damage that's occurred that's really going to put a lot of them out of business. And what's sad is that the people left in those communities are often having to bear the burden and pay the price of destruction that was done by people who were not from their communities. And so there's going to be some needed uh, sort of venture capital investment in, in revitalizing uh, those communities. I think I think local private sector business communities will really need to come together and figure out ways to sort of restore economies and communities that were destroyed uh, by this. It's going to be very costly uh, to do so. And I think the, the extent to which government allows uh, businesses to, to really work together to do this well, uh, we can have the sorts of recoveries that, that are that are needed. You know, for the large chains, they often have the margin to uh, withstand uh, some some level of of this, and so they'll they'll be fine. It's the small businesses, really; those are the ones that we should be uh, the most the most concerned about, because we all lose uh, when local economies lose small businesses, and it's just really sad that that these sort of local small businesses are having to you know they're being punished really uh, because of uh, decisions and actions that they had absolutely no part in so we'll need to figure out a way to to get them back on track i think we can do it uh, with the right partnerships and with with the right uh, local leadership i think it can be done but it's going to require a lot of hard work so you were you were talking about all of the hard work that needs to be done to rebuild um, not only not only what was what was obviously destroyed, but also um, a lot of the damage that has contributed to this that that our society has been undergoing for a long time. Um, that that rebuilding, that hard work of rebuilding. How can Christians contribute to that? What, what's, what's the best sort of thoughtful response that they can, that they can give um, in a world that, that's very – that in many places is very angry right now and that is looking for some hope? That's a fantastic question. I think there's so much confusion about what to do. I think people are eager to do something because the chaos is so bad. These issues are so intense. I was just looking today that I just saw this morning that 
they were in protests in all 50 states. I, could, I was, I couldn't believe that. I mean, I can't remember the last time we've seen that. And I, I think, I think it's important. I'm just going to press the local solution option as the best, as the best way to go. I think, I think looking to the federal government in Washington D.C. Uh, for leadership on this is is actually the wrong place to look. I think Christians should, in local churches. This is a time for us to really begin to reinvest in our local communities. I think we need to start showing up at city council meetings now, again, at city hall. Uh, We need to get to know our representatives uh, who are representing our districts locally. Uh, We need to know who our mayor is. We need to know who our state representative is for our state capital, because the, the solutions to all of this are going to be local. Right, they're not going to be nationalized. There's 12,000 local police departments, and and it's going to require, I think, 12,000 uh, different types of solutions because each each jurisdiction has a different complex of issues that they, that they need to work on. So I think I think that that Christians need to think about this, right? What what are the ways in which they can help to facilitate better relationships between? Uh, law enforcement and residents, and what can they do to help uh, facilitate better connections between and across uh, racial lines? And I think there are lots of opportunities uh, for churches to take the leadership in, in expanding the ways in which people are connected. I think that people probably should start doing something as simple as getting to know their neighbor. Uh, there are people in your communities that have that are from different backgrounds. You should have them over for dinner. Uh, you should hang out. You should get to know them. There's so much dis- disconnection. I think you have, you know, black churches and white churches and Hispanic churches that don't know each other. These churches should be getting together. Uh, you know, those are some of the more relational things. But I think on the structural side, I think we need people who care about the rule of law, who care about property rights, who care. Uh, about human flourishing, who who care about introducing people into opportunities for economic exchange, who care about the proper role of, of of government to actually be involved in local government. Right? We need we need people who 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 believe in these principles and ideas to actually be on the city council, because that's where decisions are made. We need we need people to be in the state house because that's where. Uh, the, the decisions are made. The, the rules that govern your community don't, aren't really coming from Washington, D.C. They're coming from your state house. And so I think the, the extent to which we begin to reinvest locally in our own communities, we're going to be able to imagine real solutions because we're going to see the problem in our neighborhood and in our community rather than trying to sort of solve this nationally. I think it's, a, it's an easier uh, a, a hill to climb when we think about it in my zip code, right? So what 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 can I do in my zip code? What are the issues that I'm seeing in my in my town, my neighborhood, that I can, in very small ways, begin to make a difference? And I, I believe that when we have the aggregate of people working locally, we'll begin to see these sort of massive change that we all want to happen, but it's not going to happen until we, you know, put our phones down, uh, turn off our televisions and go and connect with people uh, in our own communities. 
and and when churches begin uh, to be involved in creating opportunities for people across lines of race and class to get to know each other so that there can be real solidarity, so they can see that we all have a common humanity and we all want the same things, right? We all want to thrive and flourish, and we get so much more done through cooperating uh, and mutually helping one another uh, than by trying to use the state to give a particular uh, pockets of our community's power over others, right? We get so much more done by exchange and cooperation and solidarity uh, when we when we pursue those things locally. So I think I think Christians can can really lean heavily into into thinking about ways to uh, connect with people that they might not connect with uh, uh, otherwise. But I also think Christians can also began to take more ownership of their communities by getting more involved in local and, and state politics as a way to leverage, right, sort of leverage virtue in those contexts as well. Absolutely. There, there are so many, so many opportunities for service um, if we look. And in those opportunities for service, uh, you know, comes responsibility and comes, you know, the, the leadership comes out of that. And uh, that's, that's, that's so very well said. Anthony, thank you so much for being with us today. And I hope, uh, I hope this country uh, can begin to rebuild and, uh, and do so on a sure foundation. Yeah, me too. I think, I think people should be encouraged. I think, I think we have real opportunities, whether you are uh, a high school basketball coach, a little league coach, a nurse, a school teacher, you run a restaurant, whatever your place is in society, uh, you can have and play a pretty historic role right now in reestablishing the sorts of connections that have been uh, rendered uh, distant uh, because of the way that we've been so so self-centered and, and self-orientated over the last 20 or 30 years. So thank, thanks again for having me on today. Thank you so much for listening to Act In Line. Our podcast team has a lot of fun putting this show together for you. And really, at the end of the day, what matters most to our team is that we're covering stories and topics that matter most to you. We love hearing from you. So don't hesitate to reach out and let us know what you think of the show or let us know what you like to hear covered. You can email us at actinline at actin.org. 